Tati Nagashima came from Mimisaki and his sake to me back.
Sam Wiles as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. And remember, this is wide screen podcasting. This is wide screen podcasting. As always, I'm your host, Sam Wiles. I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. Right, everyone out there, it's actually happened. I have finally gotten my grubby little mitts on my very first Beatles 50th anniversary vinyl box set. Yes, I am aware that I'm a little late to the game in this case, and this is likely going to be, if not definitely, the last one in the series, and it's going to be very difficult for me to procure new ones as they get very expensive very quickly. Uh, We're probably not going to see a rubber sole or a revolver one until technology progresses to the point where Giles can do some of his fancy work on it. But the key difference here at this point is that the podcast has grown to a sustainable point whereby my invaluable Patreon family has helped me purchase this uber-pricey release. That being the five vinyl disc version along with the book. No, I didn't pick up the CD version which has the extra Blu-ray in it. I don't need to listen to it in 5.1 Dolby. That's really not my style. Plus, if you buy CDs, I think you're really buying a dead format there. But anyway, on to my very first Beatle box set. I can remember the anxiety of worrying that it wouldn't arrive on release day. I can remember listening to it on streaming on my bike ride home from work, very much in the same way that I did with McCartney 3. But what I remember most is that mahoosive cardboard box that it came in. It was in my lounge. You know, the moment I set my sights on it, I was absolutely drooling. And for good reason, as... This box set, regardless of content, is an absolute marvel to behold visually. I mean, it really is gorgeous, and I do wish that I had a shelf worthy enough to seat it properly. You know, you could get all the vinyl discs, get that wonderful black slip case that it comes in, and it's got the holes that allows the Beatles' faces to come through, even though I like to put the wrong album on top so that you get a very weird image coming through. Uh, all the individual vinyl sleeves themselves are wonderfully crafted. Like, this is a really slick box set. It's very much worth your money. Or is it? Well, that's what we're going to be getting into today. We are going to be going through the Let It Be 50th Anniversary box set, song by song, track by track, book by... Well, there's only only one book, but you know what I mean. I've never really been one to rank Let It Be amongst my top Beatle albums... I have one friend at university who said it was his favourite album, so I've never been one to completely poo-poo it. But let's just say that this post-purchase period is definitely (laughs) a time where I've listened to Let It Be the most. I feel like I know this album like the back of my hand, and I know that I'm ready to tackle it with some semblance of officiality. Again, folks, I'm not going to be rewriting the entire podcasting format here today. Here today. No, instead, we are just going to be going through the album, disc by disc. Maybe not exactly in the order that they would like me to go through, because I prioritise some things over others. But yeah, nothing too complex. I'm just going to give my thoughts, 
Maybe they're in line with yours. Maybe they're not. The important thing to realize though is that this is my first Beetle box set. I do know the content of the other ones, but I've never had them. I've never physically held them in my hand. So of course, the fact that I own this box set and the fact that you wonderful people out there listening right now technically bought it for me means I might be a little bit skewed somewhat. But overall, at the start of the episode, I can say that I was very happy with this purchase. I'm very happy to own it. It is a wonderful piece in my vinyl collection. You know, it really is the jewel of my collection so far. And my goal now is to add not only all of the Beatle 50th anniversary releases, but to pull my finger out and start getting some of those McCartney archive releases as well. I still think there's some Flaming Pie ones going, so maybe look at getting that for Christmas. Who knows? But yeah, before we can do any of that, folks, it is time for us to crack on with the... Housekeeping! Right, what have we got in terms of news for today, folks? On Saturday, the 30th of October 2021, Paul McCartney inducted the Foo Fighters into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame at their ceremony. Yes, the Foo Fighters are an amazing band. I'm not particularly a fan of their album tracks, but they do have one of the greatest, most undeniable collection of greatest hits ever. Their singles are absolutely amazing. Dave Grohl is not only a wonderful person, a fantastic storyteller, but he is legit one of the last great rockers of the modern era. It's not indie, it's not pop rock, he's just a straight up rock and roll legend. Of course, he started off with Nirvana in the 90s and then when that kind of collapsed, he started Foo Fighters. He did the entire first album on his own, which is a very McCartney-esque thing to do in its own way. And then he got the band together, a band that he's had pretty much the entire run, I believe. But he and Paul, over the years, have started a friendship. Dave Grohl on many talk shows and radio shows has talked about McCartney to no end. Ages ago now, the Foo Fighters covered Band on the Run for one of their B-sides, I believe, and that's kind of where the friendship started. Then in 2014, at the Grammys, Dave Grohl, along with Jeff Lynne, plays what he called a quintessential Beatles rocker, a.k.a. Hey Bulldog. And after that, with events like the White House gig and stuff like that, you just see Dave Grohl and Paul McCartney everywhere. It's a wonderful handing of the baton from one generation to another. They are clearly really good friends. And who better to induct Dave than Paul himself? And they celebrated with a performance of Get Back. A, because that's one of the songs in Paul's set that he can still sing reasonably well, but also because... You know, this box set was coming out. That that was totally planned. Um, I know a lot of people out there, especially on my Twitter page and on the rest of the socials, were not all that impressed by Paul's vocal here, but I really enjoyed it, actually. So let's just listen to the ceremonies and listen to the song. And you know what? I didn't say it in my speech, but listen, I never took lessons to learn how to play music. You know what I had? I had a Beatles songbook, a Beatles record, and a record player. And so everything I learned about rock and roll was from this man right here. I mean, he's, he's my music teacher right there. That's it.
Let's get back. Come on, let's get back. Let's For those of you who like all things spooky, both Paul and Ringo posted their respective Halloween costumes on social media. Ringo went in this very creepy silver mask. It looked like something from Squid Game, but I don't think it was. And Paul went with a nice, generic, scary, grim reaper skull kind of thing. Definitely more about them covering their faces so that they can go in public more than scaring everyone, but... Go and check out social media to go see what they look like. Very good stuff. I myself, as you may have seen from the Paul or Nothing Instagram feed, went as Wolverine this year and I did indeed have to cut my beard. What else we got? Paul's new lyric book has finally been released. Yes, Paul McCartney, the lyrics, the two volumes with Paul Muldoon has finally hit shelves. Pretty much everyone in the Beatles' new media world has their copy. Mine is on the way now that this episode is finally done. And it's probably going to lead to at least three episodes in a row where I am reviewing recent Beatle or Paul McCartney books. Not even including this one where we are going to be reviewing the Let It Be 50th Anniversary book at the end. Uh, yeah, a lot of McCartney printed word, a lot of McCartney literature being released at the moment. Uh, which is not very good for me, really, because I do struggle to read at the best of times. But in more important news, I also have a mole or two that are going to be attending the Paul McCartney The Lyrics live event, the live reading, the live interview that will be taking place in London on November 5th, which at the time of recording is only one day away. So by the time you hear the next episode of this show, I'll have some updates for you. Keep your ear to the ground on that front. Speaking of said lyrics book, good friend of the podcast, Dr. Duncan Driver, was seemingly quite exacerbated by the fact that Little Lamb Dragonfly was sadly absent from the mass of songs featured in that text. You know, did we have to hear about scrambled eggs or Mother Mary coming to him in, in a dream? Why couldn't we have heard about Little Lamb Dragonfly? So, to correct that egregious error, he has actually written his own entry that would have been worthy of going in the book. There'll be a link down below. I highly suggest you go check it out. It is incredibly thorough. You know, I've spoken with Duncan a couple of times now. I know him to be a very insightful, very intelligent bloke. If you listen to One Sweet Dream, then that will confirm that. But this is the first time I've actually got to see something he's written and... By God, is this man a scholar. It is a frightfully good piece of work that puts anything on the Paul McCartney blog to shame. Still go check it out, though. Um, but yeah, links down below for Dr. Junkin Driver's essay slash book entry for Little Lamb Dragonfly. And with 
And with the news over, let's get into the plugs. To get in contact with the show, drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I always love to read out your correspondence here, your Paul McCartney stories, your Paul McCartney opinions, your reviews. Get them all sent in for more instant access for daily updates and all sorts of weirdness follow us on our twitter page which is at mccartney pod that's at mccartney pod it, like i say it's just the best way to keep up with the runnings of the show if you want more bonus written paul or nothing content then go check out the blog which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com for all sorts of bonus articles you know stuff that i couldn't quite fit into the format of the show if you want to get your paul mccartney fix Go there, that's paulmcconnypod.wordpress.com. Follow us on the socials. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, simply by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. It's very much like the Twitter, but it's more your jam. The Facebook one's more about individual posts of episodes, and the Instagram is more about pictures. It kind of makes sense if you know those apps. In terms of YouTube, YouTube is the only place where you can check out new episodes of Macca in Your Attic, the Paul or Nothing spin-off series where me and a notable guest dust off a few cobwebs, go in their attic and look at five interesting, valuable, rare, sentimental or just plain old strange items from their Paul McCartney slash Beatle memorabilia collections. There are now 20 episodes up on YouTube and there are several more up on the Patreon. Go and check them out now. Go and show your support. If you like this podcast, if you like the conversation I have with guests, then you will love Macca in your attic. If you want to help out the show right away, in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, then please consider leaving us a review on whatever platform you are listening to this on. Whether it's a thumbs up, whether it's a certain amount of stars, a little review, or even something down in the comments section. It is all greatly appreciated it all goes towards the unknowable algorithms but i know you know that already if you like the show enough folks if you like what i'm doing here then please give us a review preferably available one however if that's not enough for you if you just really love the show you want to help us out directly you want to help keep the lights running if you want to help me purchase product to review such as this let it be 50th anniversary box set or the Paul McCartney lyrics book that I am going to be reviewing uh, either next week or the week after. Maybe want to help, you know, fund equipment that I use on the show, like this wonderful microphone that I'm using right now, then please consider joining our, our Patreon page. Yes, Patreon is the platform by which you, the public, can support independent content creators such as myself, but it is not just a fundraiser, folks. You do get your money's worth immediately. The benefits include... Two-day early access to all episodes of Paul or Nothing. You get episodes of Macca in your attic a week earlier. In addition to that, you get the Paul or Nothing video stream. This is probably one of the best benefits. Uh, so many of the episodes that I do, especially ones with guests, are now recorded on Zoom. And so if you prefer watching Paul or Nothing content, if you are one of the YouTube fans, then go and check out the Patreon page because everything that I record instantly goes up on the Patreon video feed, regardless of when it's coming out. Uh, for example, my conversation with Ken Michaels that was released last week was actually on the video feed on Patreon for several months. So you could have watched that much earlier than everyone else. 
in addition to the exclusive video feed, you get lost episodes, bonus episodes, stuff that I will never release on this feed. You get instant access to all the scripts I use for the show. You get to vote on what content I'm going to be working on next. And much, much more. But before we move on, I do have to shout out our latest Patreon patron, Mr. D-Dubs. Thank you, Mr. D-Dubs. I know you've been a very vocal person on our YouTube page. You've also sent many nice comments already on the Patreon page. I really hope you are enjoying it. I hope you feel like you are getting your money's worth. I know you are. I certainly know you feel that way. There's lots more content going up onto the Patreon every day. So do keep your eyes peeled for that. But... As always, thank you so much for your patronage. It's always touching. It's always uh, very, very, very heartwarming. And I can only hope that the community grows, you know? A community that not only supports me financially, it supports me emotionally and psychologically. And all of you together are just the kindest people in the world. So let's give a quick shout out to Mr. D Dubs, Andy Cochran, Guy Jenkinson. Nancy Twoney, Richard Campbell, Christopher Newman, Roderick Harper, Moti Ryber, Robert Shuley, Christian Perry, Richard Driver, Chris Atkinson, Richard Biddington, Mr. B, Teresa Brader, Stephanie Miller, Lou DiLonardo, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S, Mrs. P, Anastasia L, Warren Butson, and Matt Phillips. Thank you, everyone. Also, I've been having a lot of issues with people's cards being declined of late. Um, this isn't a rant about the money or anything, folks. Uh, if, if you are struggling, if you are between paychecks, just let me know. Uh, you know, because I still want you to be a part of this club, whether you may be able to or not at this precise moment. And if there is an issue, let me know and I'll see what I can do about making sure you get the same content till you are back on your feet, as Paul once so brilliantly put it. You know, I owe you so much more than what I can give you in terms of bonus content. So, you know, a little payment issue here or there really isn't an issue. Anyway, folks, now that the housekeeping is done, let's unpack this wonderful box set. The Let It Be 50th Anniversary Box Set. Okay, folks, we're going to start off with what on paper is supposed to be the main selling point of this collection, which is the... 2021 50th anniversary remix of Let It Be. Of course, as with all of the previous remixes since Sgt. Pepper onwards, this was overseen by Giles Martin, the son of George Martin, and thankfully not by Dante or Gary Spector. So, what we have is a version of Let It Be that, whilst not new per se, has indeed been cleaned up, buffered, polished, and presented in the best possible way at least as far as Apple and the Beatles' estates are concerned. But before we dive right into the tracks, let's just get on to the baggage, as I have to mention quite a few things right off the bat in regards to how I'm approaching this particular disc. First of all, is the fact that I'm hardly an audiophile. I barely know my MP3s from my WAV files, let alone the intricacies of vinyl. I mean, yeah, I've read and been told and re heard reviews that... This new mix is supposed to sound better, but I struggle to notice those changes. Like, when you have something like the Sgt. Pepper's 50th anniversary album, which has some pretty drastic changes, then yeah, I can spot them. But 
Some of them almost felt like straight-up re-edits with entire elements removed or added. Though when you look at the White Album or the Abbey Road remixes, it was certainly the case whereby most of the remixes were just different instruments being at a different volume and levels in the mix, you know, lowering or raising the vocals, that kind of thing. And whilst I am going to be trying to point out those changes shortly, I really don't know how successful I'm going to be, Anne, because the changes on this album, for me, for the most part, weren't drastic enough. Like, if you were to put this album on, say, a year ago, and just told me that it was Let It Be... I probably wouldn't have spotted many differences. Secondly, my vinyl setup is less than optimal. I certainly spend far more time buying vinyls themselves rather than a proper hi-fi system on which to play them. Again, I'd rather have a f <laughs> another Beatles 50th anniversary box set or a McCartney archive set than a brand new uh, vinyl spinner for Christmas. But yeah, I hardly have the best player on the market. Which also brings me to my next point. My previous copy of Let It Be was absolute dot what well, is absolute dog shit. I mean, it's chipped, scratched, scraped, and beaten within an inch of its life. And it is the reason, probably more so than any, why it has been one of the Beatles albums I've listened to least on that format. So this means that my views on Giles's mix are going to be hardly the most insightful because everything's going to sound better than the version I've already listened to. And then on top of that, any attempts to figure out these details on streaming platforms like Spotify are also flawed as listening to them through my laptop speakers is not going to be sufficient and I don't really have the best earphones either, which is again, not the best way to approach the material. The other issue is that I'm going to try and not sound like a massive Luddite here, but rather like my pal Ken Michaels, I'm really not all that fussed about remixes to begin with. Like, yeah, that likely has something to do with my self-admitted tin ear to the process, but what I'm all about is the bonus material. I'm interested in and want to buy these re-releases 95% of the time for the bonus materials that were not available on the original album. Yes, one can easily find these bonus materials and more on YouTube, but it is such a joy-joy to have physical vinyl copies of them and to have and to hold. You know, if I could have the Flaming Pie box set and have some of the Phil Ramone tracks on vinyl, my God, that would be an indescribable feeling. So, with that in mind, if anything, the inclusion of the original album is really the quote-unquote bonus material for me, as it is more than likely I'll be listening to the Glyn Johns mix, the studio rehearsals and alternative takes, and the EP more often than this album. But it's not just about the physical audibility or technological issues that plague me going into this, because there's also a history I, for one, have never been a huge decrier of the production work that murderer Phil Spector put into Let It Be. I always strive to separate the art from the artist, not always successfully, but you've got to give it a go. And as I've mentioned before, being a fourth or fifth or sixth generation Beatle fan, I was not even aware that George Martin didn't produce this album until much later into my fandom than anyone would have rightly guessed. Like, 
I cannot separate the fact that people say they don't like the production of this album purely because McCartney said so. It's very much a narrative that's been drummed into us for so long. And by this point, it's practically dogma. But I know that many of you out there listening right now would never have thought that had it not been presented to you first. I've always loved the production on the original Let It Be, as I felt it was totally appropriate that their final outing would be full of schmaltz and overly sentimental saccharine flourishes. There's a real warmth and fuzzy, nostalgic feeling that you get from this album. From that album, I should say. And besides, it's how it was released, it's a part of history, it always will be, and there's no way to change that. Well, maybe there was a bit. As leading on from that, my immediate thoughts going into this new 2021 remix was the ever-present idea that we've already had a rather drastic revisionist remix of this album with 2003's Let It Be Naked, aka the Paul McCartney mix of the album. To be more specific, it was a despectorized version of the album, which in addition to adding Don't Let Me Down back onto the track listing, completely removed any of the trimmings that were not the plain old Beatles recordings. So yes, that means no Spectre orchestrations, or Spect orchestrations as they will now be known, but it also meant that any of the fun studio or film banter at the beginning and end of songs were removed, as well as, for some ungodly reason, Maggie May and Dig It being removed in their entirety. But yeah, there was a nagging sense that Paul, being that he's still alive and still ever-present and powerful as ever, would be tempted to do the same again with this release, especially with songs like The Long and Winding Road. But thankfully, as we will shortly see, that's not what happened. After having listened to this mix now, I've got to say, I understand what Giles was doing. This is an album for posterity. This is meant to be the very best one can get out of those recordings. And I would be lying if I said that it wasn't incredibly clean, incredibly well-produced, well-mixed, well-balanced. But it's not the original Let It Be, is it? And it never will be. However... Being that you've got the original album, the Let It Be Naked stuff, you've got this 2021 mix, as well as all the other bootleg stuff, you really can pick and choose now. You really can make your own perfect version of Let It Be. And I know that there are going to be many people out there who are more inclined to lean towards a slicker production style. And that is what Giles has given us here. He is an incomparable producer. He's carried on his dad's legacy in a way that only most of us could only dream of. And you know what? Let's just let's just dive in. With, with all that in mind, um, the uneducated Luddite is going to tell you what he noticed about the 2021 remix. And where better to start off than at the beginning, aka with two of us. Okay, so one thing I did pick up on right away was how much clearer the individual elements of both John and Paul's vocal tracks were. They were much less of an amorphous blend, and instead you could really appreciate how brilliant the harmonies are for what they were. 
Though the best thing I can say about this new mix in particular is how much I enjoyed how loud George's guitar was at the end when the rest of the band fades out. You know, it really gives him more of a presence on that track. On to the second song now with Digger Pony. And yeah, I really enjoyed this mix overall. The bass is noticeably higher here, which makes it seem like he was meant to big up Paul to a certain degree, but then Paul's backing vocals are turned down quite a bit and really highlight John's here. So I guess that balances it out a bit. I know some people don't like it when the bass is really cranked up on these songs, but when you've got Paul McCartney in your rhythm section, it's certainly not a negative for me. Yeah, a very good version of Digger Pony here. Pressing on to Across the Universe, which was one of the tracks that was first previewed to us a while back now. Now, this was the first track where I could specifically make out some notable differences between it and the original Let It Be that we all know and love. The orchestrations were far more luscious and pronounced and gave it a real epic sweeping feeling. You know, it, it really felt like Giles did justice to the fact that, you know, John felt like this song hadn't been properly recorded the first time, maybe hadn't been properly recorded the second time, but this is across the universe. Like, it really goes along with the lyrics in that kind of cosmic way. I, was, I, I felt really swept away by this one. And additionally, you had that delicious twangy electric guitar brought up far more in the mix as well. You know, you could really miss George's lead guitar in the original one, and here it, it, it shines all the brighter. Also, I feel like the backing like orchestration in terms of the backing chorals were either lowered or John's vocal was brightened a little bit as, again, it, it felt very much more of a, a John track here rather than a Phil Spector production. Uh, this might be my favourite version of Across the Universe. Actually, no, it definitely is. Next up we have I Mean Mine, which has always been one of my top tracks from this album, and Giles certainly does it right. George's vocal, as well as the Phil Spector choral overdubs, seemed much, much brighter. And this is one of those tracks where I actually prefer that uh, Giles really beefs up uh, the, the main orchestration. And it really was incredibly uh, dominating towards the end of the track, giving it an overall more grandiose and epic feel to it, rather like, you know, in Across the Universe as well. Again, this is easily one of my favourite versions of this song. And not only does it make me appreciate Spectre's decision to lengthen the short ditty in the way he did, but... You know, this is also clearly one of those songs that most benefits from having Giles with the modern tech behind it, because it just sounds fucking great. Then we have Dig It, and I really don't know if there were any differences here, to be honest, though I'm not sure what you could do with a little goofy jam track like this. Onto the title song now, Let It Be, and this is, this is probably the best example of certain songs in this mix possibly coming off as a little too clean. Now, whilst I'm not a fan of everything Spectre did with his mix, there was still a certain schmaltzy warmth to it. And whether due to Giles' meddling or the modern tech being used to mix the album, a lot of that 
gooey, fuzzy, nostalgic charm has been stripped here. It certainly seems like a bit of a anachronistic or black sheep mix when compared to the other songs on this release. And I kind of feel like they've done a little bit too much work on it. Maybe because it's the title track, maybe because McCartney's alive, but I feel like just so many elements have been dulled down or stripped away or deadened and it's just the McCartney vocal and the piano that's really dominant here. Uh, this track is probably the closest to a despectorization that we get on this new 2021 mix. Obviously, it's not, you know, you can still hear the spect orchestrations, but they aren't as prominent. They're really not. Though it's not all bad, because what I will say in this mix's defence is that George's solo certainly benefits from a crisper, more refined mix as it comes roaring in like I have never heard before. Oh my God, I really appreciate George Harrison's solo on this song in a completely new way. It was mind-blowing. Probably not my favourite mix of this song ever, but but it is certainly not without merit. Opening side two with Maggie May, and as with Dig It, I really wasn't able to notice any major differences here, and I'm glad, because nothing needs changing whatsoever with that song, and because of that, I love it all the same. Okay, on to the first proper track of side two, and this is I've Got a Feeling. And finally, we get to talk about Ringo in this one, because this really isn't a Ringo mix, this album. But with this one, his drums, especially the hi-hat and those toms, are much brighter and louder. You really feel like Ringo's chugging this song along, you know. There's so much energy and oomph to it, and the song really benefits from that kind of zhuzh. Although... I feel like John's vocal during the simultaneous vocals, you know, when he's doing Everybody Had a Hard Year, have been lowered slightly in the way that Paul's were in Digger Pony. And, and yeah, that separation may work in other tracks, like in Two of Us, and it might make the mix less cluttered and cleaner. But the overlapping nature of those vocals was always the charm of it for me. And some of it is lost in this mix, though the, the flip side of that is that McCartney's vocal has never sounded better in this song. You know, McCartney's one of rock's great voices and it's really never sounded better. Then we can move on to low-key my favourite song of the album, which is the one after 909. And yes, I really did say that, folks. I know my best friend Tom is scoffing at that very idea right now. And there wasn't really too much I could make out here, as this is easily one of the simpler tracks overall, but like much of the rest of the album, I could detect that the vocals were ever so slightly louder and distinct from each other, rather like uh, the, the two of us and I've Got a Feeling, which only adds to the jolly atmosphere of this song, just the idea that Paul and John are just belting out this classic rock tune. And aside from alternative takes and various Glyn Johns mixes, this is probably my favourite preferred version of One After 909. Then we come on to a song that we all knew was going to be a real difficult one to change and or not change, which of course is 
The Long and Winding Road. As we all know, this track was stripped of its notorious spectrization on both Anthology 3 and Let It Be Naked. And I was honestly quite surprised at how little despectrization there was. If anything, there felt like there was a greater blend of the band tracks and the orchestra tracks than ever before. Like, in the original, the orchestration kind of comes in and out for dramatic effect where needed, whereas with this new version, the sound is far more consistently present throughout. The overall effect is a much more subdued and naturalistic version of the song that still has all of the flourishes, but they do come off as far less in-your-face saccharine and melodramatic. I guess the short version of this is that this is the perfect mid-ground between the Let It Be Naked version and the original Phil Spector mix, which I'm not sure if I prefer or not, but it's certainly one of the most interesting tracks on this album, which is saying a lot because it's my least favourite song. Next up, and we have another George remix with a difference here with For You Blue. This is another one that I really feel like has just been brightened and polished to a wonderful shine. George's vocal has never sounded happier and more chipper. I'm glad they really focused on that. Oddly, John's slide guitar has been turned down ever so slightly, and instead George's plinky-plucky lead guitar has been turned up slightly, which I thought was quite interesting. Uh, well, especially since George probably only threw John that guitar part to keep him remotely interested in the track in the first place. But as with all these best remixes, all the alternative takes, Billy Preston's electric piano is brought right up and is almost the focus of the song, which I was really drawn to. This is, again, another version of this song that might be the best. And now we close things out with Get Back, the original title track. And with most of the songs on this album, the vocals have never sounded more clear or more fresh. Again, McCartney just sounds great vocally on this album. It's probably no accident. Also, I don't know whether this is because of the particularly droning bass line, but I was pretty sure that I could make out the guitars much more in this one, both George's scratchy chords and... John's more rhythmic elements. In previous mixes, these guitars have always been kind of buried, and I'm glad we finally get to hear them in all their glory and, you know, get to make out what they add to the song this time around. Maybe not the best version of Get Back, but it's certainly not the worst. So, yeah, that was my song-by-song -song review of the first disc in this colossal collection, the 2021 mix of Let It Be. Overall thoughts? Look, of course, it's Beatles. So, duh, I love it. It's certainly different, but it's not revolutionarily different, and I think that was the point. We have had, like, like, like I said, the, the massive remix back in 2003, but the album certainly has been modernised here. It's clearly been made with posterity for future generations in mind, and it does present the sessions and each song in the best possible light, even if each single element of each of these songs couldn't be highlighted maybe in the way that I'd like. Though none of these changes were far too egregious or anything, nothing has been ruined here. And I do understand why most of these alterations were made, at least in my own head canon. 
All of these tracks, in terms of their differences, make for fun curiosities in the Beatles' discography. They don't do anything to erase the original tracks, only to lift them up. And if you don't like the particular mixes, you don't have to listen to them. You know, like I say, it's nice to have more alternate versions of these tracks so that people in the modern age of streaming and iTunes can build their own ultimate versions of this album. You know, it's going to be a matter of taste and preference here, whether you prefer a rougher or more polished modern version of this album. Though several tracks literally have never sounded better and are worth the entire effort alone. Uh, I've got to give shout-outs to I've Got a Feeling, Across the Universe, I Mean Mine, which is one of each, actually, of the main songwriters, which is quite nice, but they sound absolutely incredible. They are now my definitive versions of these songs. In the end, it hasn't made me reconsider Let It Be as a whole and, you know, made me put it in my top three Beatles albums or anything, but it has made me reevaluate and reappreciate most of the individual songs as well as the band's songwriting and musicianship during these sessions. So overall, I'm going to call it a success. Not a massive success, not a resounding success, not a runaway success, but... A success. A thumbs up. A solid B grade. Maybe even a B plus if I'm feeling nice. Okay, now we can move on to the first real piece of bonus material for this album, which is the Glyn Johns Mix, a.k.a. the original 1969 Get Back album. Now, in the disc running order on streaming and on Discogs and stuff, this is actually listed as... The fourth disc, but this is the one I want to cover first. So for me, this is disc two. For those of you who don't know, I don't know why you wouldn't, Glyn Johns was the original pseudo-producer for the Get Back Let It Be project, and this album represents one of the compilations of material that he put together for the Beatles' approval slash disapproval. Of course, we only get the one version of Get Back here. They were never going to give us multiple copies of it. But as my research has shown me, not from the book included in this set, but online, that John's actually put together at least three or four different versions of the Get Back album together. And I'm pretty sure that this is the third compilation by John's. I only thought there were two originally, but... As it turns out, there may at least have been five if you count the version he floated around, which was to include a bunch of oldies and goldies. So yeah, as I mentioned earlier, when it comes to these sets, I am all about the bonus materials on offer, and I am not exaggerating when I say that the lion's share of my reasoning for committing to buying this set was indeed this particular bit of bonus final. Yeah, there, I said it. This black disc had more excitement in me than anything else on offer and for good reason. First and foremost is that I've been struggling to find a damn copy of one of the original bootlegs for a while now. Most of, if not all of the versions that John's put together had certain early bird pressings that are impossible to find and then you have the bootlegs which are only near impossible to find. I mean, I was only able to acquire a copy of Hot Hits and Cold Cuts because a certain very kind fan out there sent me one, and I highly doubt any of you are desperate to send me an original Glyn Johns Get Back. And so, this box set 
is likely the closest I'll ever come to ever owning one. That being said, for the most part, this is a highly satisfying second place. Starting off with the positives, I must first point out how excellently executed the packaging for this disc was. Aside from a few copyright scribbles with 2021 on the bottom of the rear cover, this is a wickedly accurate recreation of the original mock-ups for the Get Back album. Of course, the album was meant to pay tribute slash send up the original Please Please Me album cover and bring it all around full circle, complete with the image on the front that would one day be the artwork for the Blue album, as well as the brilliantly spoof-tacular Tony Barrow-esque album liner notes on the back. Of course, this is more of a compliment to the original artwork and not so much the original 2021 crew, but it's just so clean and slick, just like the production on the main album, and I just love it, simple as. In terms of audio, I am glad that there are enough differences between this disc and the 2021 mix to justify its existence. Of course, you have the track listing reordering, the additions of Teddy Boy, the medley, and the Get Back reprise, which is just great, and you have all of the spect orchestrations completely stripped away, which makes the fact that one of my exes stole slash reclaimed my vinyl copy of Let It Be Naked sting a whole lot less. There is also plenty of studio banter, crew chitter chat and diegetic sounds interspersed throughout this mix. And whilst I may or may not spend some time decrying tracks that are comprised entirely of studio dialogue when we get to the bonus discs, but when we talk about it within the, the context of the talking and accidental noise being incorporated into the songs directly for effect, it creates a really immersive studio atmosphere where you really feel like you are so close to these recordings as if you were actually there with them. I think John's had the right idea here, even if not the best execution. I, I really do get what he was going for here. The other thing I really enjoy about this album, and again, this is more of a compliment to Glynn's work than anything else, is how accurately it captures the original brief of the Get Back project. The fact that we have John asking for the crew to be quiet or the clinking of ice in the drinks or even flubbed takes of the tracks is exactly what I would hope to hear from a back-to-basics, stripped-down, fly-on-the-wall take on a Beatles album. Of course, that effect is also achieved through the more rough-and-ready mixes of the music as it bears the Beatles in a little more of a raw and open fashion and, in turn, shows them off as a bunch of talented musicians in any situation rather than just a bunch of studio wizards and producers who can do it all later in the edit. However, there is one slight issue in the way that, that the album is mixed. It's not rough enough. It's just not. Certainly not as rough as I remembered. I honestly wish that this was even more slapdash and chaotic than what we ultimately got, and I don't think I'm the only one here. We established earlier that this is likely the third version of John's compilation slash track listing, and by that point, it makes sense that it may have become a little more well-produced and slick than the first two, especially more than the acetate versions early on, the ones that John may have leaked in the States. But Having gone back to YouTube and listened to various videos all claiming to be different versions of the Glyn Johns mix of the album, I must profess my suspicions that some modern-day 21 fuckery had gone on in the production of this particular disc. Again, I'll get to this when we come to the two bonus discs, but there is a distinct lack of a lack of polish on this album, and I couldn't help pick up on some 
smoothing and extra tinkering going on through these mixes. I know I've spent a lot of time already explaining how I really can't pick up on these kind of things, but the, the Glyn Johns mix is starkly different to the original album. And so even the fact that a yokel such as I can pick up on how shiny and clearly not rough this album is, then surely some fuckery is afoot. I mean, to illustrate my point, let's just go listen to what I always knew as the original Glyn Johns mix of One After 909. <laughs> actually playing the new mix of One After 909 for direct comparison as Apple has a knack for copyright claims surrounding their new releases. You don't want to poke the bear there. But if you haven't already picked up on how delightfully awful that that mix was in its own charming way, then I encourage you to go back and listen to the new mix right now. It's on YouTube. Don't worry. You're not going to miss anything. I'll just be sitting here waiting for my copy of Paul McCartney, the lyrics to show up. As Denny Lane said, go now. Okay, everyone, you should totally have picked up on what I was talking about there, as it is rather clear that 
there is a world of difference between this and what we got on the 50th anniversary box set. The version I played a moment ago is much more what I was expecting and hoping for when it came to this release, and it's obvious that this is not what we got. As far as I'm concerned, I want the roughest, rawest, least polished, realistic, brutally honest, and all over the place recording possible. That is certainly not what Apple or the Beatles estates would have wanted to present in terms of the music. Maybe there's a bit of schadenfreude, maybe a bit of a rebellious streak in there, but if I know the band don't want it released, of course I want it to be released. Of course, there is that quote from Lennon where he compliments Spectre as he was, and I quote, given the shittiest load of badly recorded shit and with a lousy feeling to it ever, and he made something out of it. And seemingly, you know, in the sense that maybe John may be never wrong in the modern day, the whole crew behind this release seemingly agreed with him, panicked, took the words to heart, and thought it needed a bit of a tune-up. Maybe Giles needed assurance that people wouldn't in turn think that he was a bad producer, making bad mixes. But it seems to be a rather poor show, rather bad cricket, that they wouldn't stick to the true ethos of what this disc was meant to be in the first place. At the end of the day, this album feels more like the takes Glyn John selected with a bit of surreptitious modern-day production behind it, as opposed to the pure original mix. Well, that's what I suspected all on my own, but as it turns out, everyone, there has been some news just in. An article recently posted on a website called The Daily Beetle recently released an article titled Wrong Masters for Glyn John's 1969 Mix and Japan to the Rescue. And, if it's true, you know, I'm yet to hear any responses from Apple or the Beatles themselves, it certainly sheds some light onto why this release sounds so deep into the uncanny audio valley for me. It reads, Universal Music in Japan received the correct master for disc four, the Glyn John's 1969 mix, and this is available in the super deluxe edition of Let It Be the 50th Anniversary Edition over there. The European version that we will now call the Rest of the World Edition is not what has been described but uses a combination and several edits of many of the tracks with Glyn John's 1969 and 1970 mixes, possibly thinking that presenting a superior sound quality was the better choice, even though the mixes were not the right ones. We do not know if the same will happen with... We do not know if the Let It Be 50th or the Japanese boxes will now be most sought after by collectors, but this could be the first time that the same official release has had a completely different disc at the same time, but in different markets. There are noticeable differences in each track, not only in speed, but in prominence of some instruments or a different vocal in one track. Holy shitballs, this is scandalous. I cannot believe that this is real. I mean, if it is, then someone really dropped the ball and either... Some splaining needs to be done or someone needs to be fired. Oh my god. I can't believe that after all this time and after all the money spent, I still don't have a proper Glyn Johns bootleg quality sounding record on vinyl. It does take a little bit of the special quality out of purchasing this album. I didn't want a clean version. I don't think anyone who cares about the Glyn Johns mixes ever wanted a clean version. Yeah, posterity's nice and all, but 
the fact that you could just go online and find a more faithful, truthful mix, it just leaves a bit of a sour taste in my mouth. I'd like to think that Apple would seek to replace all of the incorrectly mixed discs with the correct ones. I mean, it isn't going to happen at all, but it's a nice thought, right? Anyway, let's press on to the songs themselves. Of course, we know that these may not be the correct mixes, plus a lot of my reviews are pretty generalised anyway, and I've gone into detail already, but I will point out specificities where necessary. Right, let's start off with... One after 909, as Glyn Johns did. And first of all, let me just point out how much better of an album opener this song is. Like, yeah, it is my favourite song from the album, so of course I would say that, but the immediate leap into raucous, thrilling energy is just so much more effective than kicking off the ride with two of us, don't you think? Also, rather interestingly, John seems to add the... I hope we pass the audition line to the end of the opening track, as if the opening track is the audition itself, not the whole album. It's cute, but I think the implication that their whole career was the audition in the way that Spectre frames it is a better use of that clip. However, as I just demonstrated in laborious detail, this isn't the purest version of the Glyn Johns mix, and the fact that I love this song so much and know so many versions of it, and the fact that it was the first track on the album, was a dead giveaway early on that something was amiss. Though, rather fortunately, I'm pretty sure Spectre and Glynn used the same take, so the difference here is small, but still noticeable. Still, I enjoy it more than the original and the 2021 mix, but not by the leaps and bounds that I would have hoped. On to the first new, quote-unquote, quote, quote, new tracks in the form of I'm Ready, a.k.a. Rocker, Save the Last Dance for Me, and Don't Let Me Down. And this mashup may be the closest thing to what I would have wanted to include if I was in charge of a Let It Be project. It begins with an impromptu jam, simply titled Rocker, which is so full of life and electricity and, you know, just that, that live studio, you've just opened the door, peeked around the corner. It's very voyeuristic and I love it because you're probably not supposed to hear it. Then the band stop and contemplate what the next thing they're going to go into which is save the last dance for me and this is as close to a, a goldie or an oldie that we would get on this album with the original being performed by Beatles favourites The Drifters. But yeah just hearing the Beatles immediately effortlessly fall back into a song that they all know and love is just so much fun to experience. It does feel like a jam, that they are just riffing and doing whatever, that it's not this strict, rigid format. Isn't that fun? Yeah, they don't play it perfectly, not by a long shot, but that's entirely the charm, and you know, it, it just accurately reflects the anything-goes nature of these sessions. It's so freewheeling. Then, to cap it all off, they transition into a failed take of Don't Let Me Down, which is an even more accurate reflection of these sessions, and again, shows the Beatles to be humans and not these flawless god figures. Yep, yeah, a really cracking little track here. I'm so glad that I get to have it on vinyl. And since this is a live impromptu take, 
I really doubt that there was any 2021 fuckery going on with this. It's pretty much exactly what I wanted. And I love it. Speaking of Don't Let Me Down, John then sequences a proper run-through of Don't Let Me Down. It's not my favourite version ever, but I certainly like it more than the original and 2021 mixes. Like many of the tracks on this album, the seriousness of the song is nicely undercut by a flubbed take at the start. So we get two fuck-ups of Don't Let Me Down on this album. But it's not disrespectful because it's quickly forgotten by just how an immense a song this is and how great a take it is. It has some truly charming janky vocals by John throughout and I like that you know John is not known as one of the greatest rock and roll voices he can tend to you know bum a note here and there and I like that I like that raw rock and roll quality to it in terms of alternate vocals as well this is the version where John goes goochie 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 good which I've always had a soft spot for in my heart. And then Paul screams, one more time, in this hilarious falsetto. We also get some truly charming, glitchy, twangy guitar across the track. Again, I really wish they'd just kind of kept that guitar tone in the final mix. It really is quite unique. It's a fun little texture to kind of counterpoint the rest of the song. We also get more Billy Preston piano which is something that I'm going to be saying a lot across this episode, because Billy just seemed to have been buried by Phil Spector on the final album, uh, which is a real shame. You, uh, you also even hear John shout, Hit it, Bill! before he does another solo, which is, is great. It really makes Billy feel like he is a featured member within this band. And then, to cap off the song, Lennon does that. I like to pick up the tempo, like strumming his guitar really fast at the end. There's just so much humour in the Glyn Johns mix. Like, yeah, you do get some banter on the Phil Spector one, but this just takes it to the next level. Following on, and rather interestingly, we have the third John Lennon pen song in a row with Digger Pony. Maybe Glynis was trying to balance out the fact that Paul had more songs than John by front-loading the album with Lennon tunes, but the end result is... Almost like side one is John and side two is Paul, which is very un-Beatle-esque in its sequencing, and I can see why Spectre changed that up a bit. Anyway, the Glyn Johns mix of Digger Pony has always been a favourite of mine, as it conveys to a far greater degree the passion and raw emotion of the song in its purest form. Being far more rudimentary in its composition, the whole instrumental mix is slightly duller and less finessed, and as a result, shines a, a lot less brighter than what we're used to. But in turn, rather brilliantly, the lessening of the instrumentation contrasts brilliantly with the added heartfelt vulnerability in John's voice, which has all of this angst and anxiety and strain going on, which really sells the number in ways that the original really doesn't. Yeah, really enjoyed this one a lot. We then move on to I've Got a Feeling, or as John called it during the last song, I've Got a Fever. Paul's vocal here is far wilder and less restrained than in the final cut, and it has this really exciting element whereby one of rock's greatest voices is let loose and might just be on the edge of flubbing the whole thing. It's, it, it, it's just so much fun. His harmonies with Lennon are also far more charming this time around, whereby you can really tell that they're just having a ball with this take. And 
John's verses also have slightly different lyrics. You know, part of the fun there is working out whether John wrote them differently or just straight up got them wrong at this particular time. You know, I like the flaws here, folks. It shows that they are, again, humans, not gods. Additionally, George's lead guitar is far more present in this mix, and he does much more melodic noodling, which I greatly appreciated. It rather joyously ends with Lennon confessing that he fucked up the take by trying to be too loud. Let's talk about the closer for side one now, which is the title track, Get Back. And it's fascinating to me that both Glyn Johns and Spectre agreed that this song would act as a good closer, just not agreeing on which side it would close. Overall, this one, like One After 909, is very similar to the original, but when I say original, I mean the single version, which has the closing coda, which, in my opinion, is the best way to end this song. Opening up side two, we have For You Blue, the only George song to make it onto the final album, though it is unclear whether I Me Mine even existed before this mock-up, but yeah, it's certainly odd to hear so little of George in this track listing. This is the track that begins with the clinking of the ice in the glass, and after a failed attempt, you can hear Lennon demanding that everyone be quiet, please, which immediately gets me riled up and ready for this track. The overall differences are a greater emphasis on the guitar parts, and again, even more room for Billy Preston's piano. Now, whilst this is a pretty much complete rendition of the final number, I will admit that the song does suffer and feel pretty darn empty without George's little Bob, Cat, Bob, Go, Johnny, Go, and uh, Elmore James Got Nothing On This Baby style outbursts as they just add so much enthusiasm and life to the track. Then we move on to the real black sheep of the family here as we go on to a track that would not be included on the final Let It Be and would instead be relegated to McCartney's first album, McCartney, which is Teddy Boy. This is the direct take that was featured on Anthology 3. However, unlike the two discs of bonus material that we're going to get onto shortly, I'm genuinely not fussed about this one being a repeat of Anthology 3 material as the Glyn Johns mix came out first. This take is pretty much note for note what we would get from McCartney's album next year, only with this one we get this hilarious uh, counter-vocal, counter-melody from John, whereby as Paul's doing the, the final verse, John does this, take your partner, don't see dough, kind of like <laughs> line dance country thing, which I'm sure gave Ringo chuckles as well. And <laughs> I do enjoy it, but it, it almost makes it feel like John's taking the piss out of the song a bit. Like, I get that none of this is meant to be that serious and there's meant to be a comedic element, but... I also know why perhaps McCartney would have wanted to do this one again without that outburst from John. It's certainly a charming oddity, and to have Teddy Boy amongst these brilliant songs certainly is a very different experience altogether. Especially in this slightly rougher, slightly slower-paced version of the song. Yeah, I really do enjoy this one, but I can understand why almost everyone involved didn't. But hey, that's their problem. On to Two of Us now, 
And right away, you can tell that this one is also much slower and a much more subdued version of the song. Everything is left with a lot more room to breathe, as many of the faster strumming parts are relegated to a single bang of the strings. Additionally, the riff, it's missing a couple of notes, but not so much as the very first ones we hear, and it does feel like a missing link between the earliest versions of the riff and the final, more melodic, more joyous one. This leads to a rather different tone and emotional response, at least from my viewpoint, making the song feel less about the celebration of an active relationship, but the celebration of one that has ended or is about to come to pass. And yeah, I know that it was and always will be about Linda, but, you know, you can't help but ponder these things. You know, it's called it's called Two of Us and they're both singing it. I totally get why people think this might be about Paul and John, and I won't take that away from them. Speaking of John, as someone who has a real soft spot for Lennon lyrical flubs, uh, this, this track might actually have the most of any song in the entire sessions, and for that, I, I can't help but adore it. Then we come on to Maggie May. I literally can't spot any differences, as it's the same tape and the same kind of mix, so we'll move on to the other so-called filler track of the Lady B sessions, a.k.a. Dig It, though this time it really pushes past that moniker of filler and instead becomes the second longest track on the entire album. Well, joint second anyway. Yeah, the once run-and-gun track is now over four minutes long, and whilst I would like to describe all the different sections, it is literally just an expanded, lengthened version of the very loose take that we all know from the main album, aka what is likely the best take of the many run-throughs of Dig It. I also cannot imagine what inspired Glyn Johns to place this song right after Maggie May, but at least he included them, unlike Paul himself on Let It Be Naked. In terms of little interesting facts that I fear only appeal to me, though, what this particular edit does highlight is that the Hark the Angels Come joke at the end was in fact part of the same take and not stitched together by Spectre in post from another audio tape. Coming on to what would be the future title track of the project with Let It Be, and this is easily my favourite version of the song. Of course, we don't have any spect orchestrations, leaving it very bare and matter-of-fact with its emotions, you know, it doesn't hold your hand in any sort of way. There's also a tremendous amount of echo in this one, which I found to be very resonant, literally and figuratively. The other element that really stood out to me, though, was how the backing vocal arrangement was much more angelic and harmonious. These vocals are a lot less wall of soundy, and whilst we do have those backing vocals present on the single version of this song, I just found these to be so much more appropriate and well done. Like, you know, this is a bit of a, a funeral-esque type song, and the fact that it sounds like something that a, a, a boys choir might sing at a funeral is much more appropriate. Again, this is a given at this point, I feel, but there's also a lot more Billy Preston, and his organ is much more dominating during its flourishes. I like how it really highlights him here. Also, George's electric guitar solo comes in slightly earlier than his solo on any of the other versions, which is also a different solo to either the single or final album version, and it's pretty cool that we get to have all three on this album. 
Then, for some ungodly reason, we go straight into the long and winding road. And whilst the obvious thing would be to talk about the lack of spec orchestrations, again, that we all knew was going to be lacking at this point anyway, the point I want to bring up is the sequencing. I mean, what madman would put Let It Be and The Long and Winding Road together at the end of the album? I mean, they are two slow, heavy-themed, ponderous ballads, and together, back-to-back, it's just far too much for me as a listener to take in, especially considering how long they are as well, and following all the energy we've had already. Very strange. Though, I would say that as these are my two least favourite songs on the album. Again, yes, I really said that. And rounding things out very nicely, bringing it full circle, or at least semi-circle, is the Get Back Reprise, slash reprise, and it's a cracking little closing stinger for the album, and a perfect little jolt of energy that makes up for the last two uber-slow numbers. I remember this little snippet of Get Back from a podcast I started called The Beatles Backwards, uh, one of the episodes that you can find on our Patreon page. Sadly, that podcast filled out a few months ago. You're probably wondering why I never really spoke about it again. Um, but yeah, I've, I've always liked this just because <laughs> it shows Paul just at his silliest and most whimsical, and it's just utterly endearing. So yeah, that was the Glyn Johns mix featured on the 2021 Let It Be 50th Anniversary box set. As we've discussed, it's not the proper Glyn Johns mix, but it's close enough, you know. Um, maybe if I hadn't have been such an in-depth fan of this particular album before and I was just listening to it for the first time, maybe I wouldn't have noticed these differences and I would have just appreciated it for being slightly less polished than the final album. But ugh, there's this huge nagging pang in the back of my mind that just wants this to be completely slapdash and it isn't that so there's a slight disingenuous dishonesty here that does take some joy away from it but to quote myself from earlier this is still a very worthy second place and the fact that it even exists at all really is a treat and I'm glad I own it Next up, we have what is arguably the most controversial element of this collection, which is the two discs of specific bonus material titled Apple Sessions, Rehearsals and Apple Jams. Of course, if you're listening to this podcast and you've probably already heard Nothing Is Real's take on this collection or something similar, aka not a very positive take at all. And the reason for that is simple. As the Beatles went on with their careers, they experimented more and more, they recorded more of what they did, and the people working with them made extra efforts to, to save all of this little bonus content. This means that by the time we get to the Get Back Let It Be sessions, where they also had cameras rolling 24-7, there was a veritable mountain of content to choose from. In turn, this results in a situation whereby no single fan is ever going to be completely satisfied by a mere two-disc set, as the limitations of the format simply cannot accommodate the glut of material on offer. But that has always been the beauty of these sessions. It wasn't just the songs that appeared on the final album that were being played. And, and yeah, I understand that Apple and the Beatles estates want to promote the best recordings possible, and that's likely what affected the Glyn John stuff, but that's not what the sessions were 
about. And it really hampers any ability for them to really show off the diversity of what the Beatles were doing at this time. Because the issue here, folks, is that with a box set like this, there's very little chance that anyone actually purchasing it is going to be anything other than a pretty diehard fan. Come on, look at the cost. And yeah, there are those who will be listening to this quote-unquote for free on streaming services like Spotify, but come on, you can't look me in the eye and tell me that this box set with five discs or five, six CDs actually, are for anyone other than the people who already know what was played during these sessions anyway. Like, they really can't pull the wool over our eyes here. We know every track that was played during the Let It Be sessions. We've heard them all in poor quality recordings on YouTube already. And, you know, it's time we had them on an official release where we don't have to feel guilty or like we're criminals to listen to them. Also, I do have to come clean in the sense that I know these two discs were always going to be fighting an uphill battle, as pretty much all of my favourite alternate mixes are the ones that were featured in the Glyn Johns mix or on the EP later on. Like, this disc was never going to have the rough and ready versions of One After 909, Rocker, Save the Last Dance for Me, Don't Let Me Down, Teddy Boy, or the Get Back Reprise. So they really would have to find some decent picks to match this kind of content. Additionally, since I already have two discs with tracks that I'm not too fond of hearing already, aka The Ballads, Lady B and The Long Unwinding Road, then any alternate takes being included of those tracks was always going to feel like wasted space to me, no matter how obvious it was that they obviously would not be included. You know, I don't think that alternate takes is the best use of this space. Like, why give us an alternate version of Get Back or For You Blue when we could just have another different song, regardless of the quality? Give us more different stuff. I feel like the day I got this box set, I ended up listening to the same songs so many times that they kind of lost meaning by the end of it, especially since I listened to it out of order and played the Glyn Johns one first. But yeah, of course, we're going to get into the highs and lows that was these discs and what was included. But first, let me just run through what tracks shoulda, woulda, coulda made it onto our shelves. You know, starting off, we could have had the electric slash fast version of Two of Us, Susie's Parlor slash Susie Parker, their comedic rendition of Besame Mucho, the Love Me Do take with Billy Preston, Commonwealth, Hot as Sun, Isn't It a Pity, Watching Rainbows, Help, the uh, comedic take which goes on to another version of Please Please Me, a different guitar bass take, Another Day, I Lost My Little Girl with John on vocals and I'm baffled as to why that's not on here, the Yoko Jam, There You Go Eddie, Old Brown Shoe, Obladi Oblada, The Backseat of My Car, Every Night, Take This Hammer, I'm So Tired with Paul on vocal, Good Rockin' Tonight, You've Really Got a Hold on Me, Get Back the No Pakistanis version, Get Back the German Gerhaus version, and all the rest of the rooftop stuff. Now, as you can hear, there's a whole lot of stuff that 
really probably should have been included. And I'm sure that there are those of you out there right now who are screaming at me for not including your own favourite bootleg track from these sessions. And that's the rub. Again, though, I know that they couldn't have included a lot of the controversial elements of these sessions, uh, probably in the way that they're trying to whitewash the whole thing and make it seem a lot more positive. And yeah, I am still calling it a whitewash, no matter how much they try and spin it any other way. Um, there's also the attempts to hide the more p poorly recorded takes to present the best audio quality. But as I've got into, that's not what the sessions were. That's not what we know them as, and that's not why we like them. We like them because it's different songs. Though I do fear that a lot of this stuff has been done to force us into getting a Disney Plus account. Well, at least force you into getting one, as fortunately I already have one, because it has The Simpsons. But you can bet your ass that there's going to be a slew of angry Beatle fans writing on every social media outlet possible if the only way they can legally listen to Susie Parker slash Susie's Parlour is by kowtowing to the mouse and watching the documentary. Like... I remember hearing somewhere that there was going to be no rooftop stuff in this box set, and I was glad that they did put one song in. But it's so transparently obvious that Disney does not want people to be able to buy this record to then avoid the, the documentary series. Like, we are being funneled in that direction. What makes it even worse is that Disney+, Plus, since its inception with its original content, has made... No promises or intent to release any of it on home release. The only example I can think of is Soul, the Pixar movie, but I feel like that's part of Pixar's contract. They wanted that to have a home release. But there's been no DVD or Blu-ray of any of the Marvel stuff or the Star Wars Mandalorian TV show. You know, They want their platform to be the sole home of this content forever. And it looks like the Get Back stuff is going to be the same until the contract slash copyright on the film expires with Disney. Then, presumably, Peter Jackson can do with it what they will. Now, they could ease this issue somewhat by doing something similar to what they did with the Yellow Submarine album several years later, which would be to do an album of songs featured in the movie, aka a song track album, as opposed to a soundtrack album. Now, yeah, this would be yet another thing to spend our money on. And half of the songs on it would be songs that we already own if you own this box set. And even the said hypothetical song track album probably still wouldn't have all the songs I just listed. But at least we'd get all the ones that were featured in the film and it would take the sting out of the whole situation. Also, before we carry on as to what was included, I just want to touch on... Spotify and streaming in general, because once again, as with the previous box sets, I really do think Apple has dropped the ball here in allowing all of this bonus content to be made available as soon as the box set hits the shelves. I mean, I can't be the only person that thinks that A, it makes more business sense to give people an incentive to buy the physical formats over waiting for what they can access for quote-unquote free, and B, makes ownership of the physical format feel all the more special to those who did go out and buy it. Okay, for the sake of full transparency, I'm sure if you go back to my episode where I discussed this with the Holly Hobbs during the Sgt. Pepper era, 
that, yeah, maybe I was very happy about having the easy free access to this material, but now that I've gone through the looking glass and I can afford to buy this stuff, I kind of feel like on some level I'm wasting a bit of money. Of course, the physical hard copy of content is always a delight, and it's always cool to have something that someone else doesn't have in the most selfish way possible, but I wish there was something audible that everyone else didn't just immediately have access to. Like, Paul does it with the archive re-releases, so why not do it here? And I'm not saying that this stuff should never go onto streaming platforms, but maybe give it two weeks or something? I mean, this is all a sad, sad byproduct of the fact that streaming downloads do go towards the total album sales, and I've got a worrying feeling that a lot of the streaming sales is what helped push Let Let It Be to number two in the UK charts quite recently. I mean, if we just go online now, the Let It Be single version 2021 mix has 49 million streams, which is insane. Most of the songs then float around at around the 100,000 mark, or um, though Get Back Take 8 has 1.8 million streams, Don't Let Me Down First Rooftop Performance, 4 million streams, Let It Be Please Please Me Take 10, 1 million streams, Long and Winding Road 2021 Mix 1.3, Let It Be 1.6 million streams. All of this goes towards pushing it up the charts, and I really wish it didn't, because all that you're really getting in being a loyal fan and buying this stuff is getting the physical product, the box, and the book. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, and do email in if you know the answer to this, but was there a time where the bonus material for the Sgt. Pepper's 50th anniversary release was unavailable online, at least for a time? Or is there anything to do with the previous 50th anniversary box sets that you can only get on physical media? Email me at paulmccartypod at gmail.com if you know the answer. Anyway, now let's go through the tracks one by one on disc one, which is Get Back Apple Sessions. And starting us off, we have a little bit of studio chatter titled Morning Camera, which goes straight into Two of Us Take Four. Though... The whole thing probably should have just been called Two of Us Take Four, as the studio chatter stuff literally lasts only seven seconds long. And whilst I get that this is likely two separate bits of audio taped together, rather than one unbroken stream, that's kind of already what Glyn Johns and Phil Spector did with the original Let It Be anyway. But yeah, after seven seconds of the Beatles saying good morning to the camera crew, we go straight into Two of Us, and what I liked about this take is that, whilst it is indeed a different take from the one featured in Anthology, it still has a moment where Lennon fucks up the lyrics, but hilariously in a different part of the song where he fucked them up the last time. Again, with this take, we get the much simpler, less catchy version of the riff, and you know what, this box it really does illustrate just how interesting that journey was to get us to the version of two of us that we all know and love. Like, it, it's crazy to me that it wasn't just written like that already. You know, it's always nice to see a song progress in that sense. Anyway, on to our first track without any studio ramblings. And we're going to start very strong here on this disc with Maggie May slash 
Fancy My Chances With You, or Fancy Me Chances With You, which is easily my favourite track from this selection here. And no, I'm not over-exaggerating when I say that. This track is so fucking full of joy and exuberant spirit that I find it utterly irresistible. So much so that it's the only track set from this box set that has made it onto my Spotify Most Played playlist. Of course, it starts off with a quick run-through of Maggie May. Again, this is a version where John and Paul get that dirty, no-good Robin, Maggie May, where they say, like, Robin, no-good, dirty Maggie May, and they both get it backwards, and I always find that to be <laughs> really fun as well. Then it goes into Fancy Me Chances With You. Now, I just assumed that Fancy Me Chances With You was another standard that the Beatles were just suddenly launching into because they did it so immediately and John knew what Paul was doing. However, doing a bit of research, it turns out that it's a Lennon-McCartney composition going back to 1958, very much in the way that One After 909 was revived for these sessions as well. And yeah, you could say that this was thrown in, you know, to kind of counterbalance One After 909, you know, but both John and Paul have a bit of representation of this early period of their careers, but I think it was just chosen because it's pretty damn catchy. It really is. I fancy me chances with you. Fancy me chances, fancy me chances, fancy me chances with you. It's just got such life to it and youth, you know, and it, oh, come on, you can tell they're having a blast singing that. It's going to be so nostalgic for them, but it's also just quite funny as well. I fancy me chances at the lock. I fancy me chances with your frock. Like, that's so playful and naughty and saucy. Like, oh, Paul, you naughty little thing. I love it. I think the song is just so good. And the fact that it's got such a backstory to it makes me love it even more. What I do find a little annoying, though, is that it seems that the Beatles were never planning on doing a full rendition of Maggie May at any point of the recording. And seemingly we're only ever going to get the one energetic verse I've found awful mashups and mixes on YouTube claiming to be real versions of the full song, but I've yet to find a proper one. Again, write into paulmcconnipod.gmail.com if you know any different. For the next track, we come on to a more complete version of Dig It, titled Can You Dig It? Which I was very happy to hear, until I realised that this version was only two minutes long or so. And yet, I know that we were never going to get the entirety of the 12-minute version or the 14-minute version on either the CD or vinyl pressings, because again, format limitations. But a two-minute version of the track feels woefully short, especially when you consider the fact that the Glyn Johns mix that was featured on the previous disc was four minutes long. So, yeah, we've still got loads of dig it that we're yet to probably legally listen to. And when you consider the fact that we get, you know, a couple of minutes of studio banter on this disc instead of a couple more minutes of Dig It, again, leaves me a little sour. Now, I know I was bemoaning how streaming formats of this release have been, you know, released at the same time as the physical format, but this particular song could have been a situation whereby it may have been beneficial for them to have something exclusive on streaming, whereby the non-finite storage space of the internet could have accommodated a 14-minute version of Dig It. Who knows? Speaking of moaning, on to track four now, and we have a, our first extended piece of slightly pointless studio chitter-chatter with Don't Know Why I'm Moaning. 
Though, I would say it's pretty interesting in that it's a conversation where Paul admits he's moaning. And, you know, this was included when the now-famous Paul and George spat wasn't. It almost seems like this was in there to counter that that idea, that narrative, you know, showing that it wasn't just the three other Beatles who were quote-unquote moaning and that, heaven forbid, some of the negativity may have come from McCartney. On to the next track, and we have For You Blue, take four. Shockingly enough, there was no For You Blue at all on Anthology 3, so it's nice to have more Harrison content this time around. Having done a failed podcast episode on this song, I can say that I knew this version quite well already, and I was pleased to hear its inclusion. Again, this version is missing many of the little vocal improvs that George threw in, but this version allows us to hear how deceptively complex the arrangement is with this song, and just how gorgeous those chord progressions are. Also, as with so many of the songs on this disc, there's more Billy Preston electric piano, which I never have a problem with. Then we have Let It Be, Please Please Me, slash Let It Be, take 10. And this was another take where I was actually rather happy to hear it, as it's the, again, exact sort of charming, shambolic thing that I would want from a disc like this, as opposed to more of those cleaner takes that Apple and the Beatle estates would rather us listen to. Of course, the standout element here is the fact that in the middle of trying to bash out Let It Be, aka what would become the title song of the album and film, Paul suddenly starts doing a very rough and ready rendition of Please Please Me on the piano as well. It's not like done on the guitar, which is, or the harmonica even, which is very interesting indeed. Of course, this is classic, possibly very irritating McCartney being really true to form, whereby he can't sit bored for a second and go straight into playing the piano, something we know that he did constantly throughout these sessions, so it's nice to have that represented here also. I mean, I can't claim that I'm not irked by my friends who do similar things with guitar, but as a piece of posterity, this is some of the best content I could ever hope in terms of this album and any alternate take of Let It Be. Next up, we have I've Got a Feeling, take 10, which is a much more swampy, dirgy, and deliciously messy version of the song that we know. It has lots of the best parts of any alternate take of this song, like Lennon comedically responding to McCartney's declaration of, of having a feeling. Like, yes, you do! Paul doing a silly falsetto version of the chorus. I've got a feeling! And of course... That kind of silly sounding kind of jingy janky guitar that for me, like I say, was one of my favourite aspects of these whole sessions. This is also one of the songs where you really can see the narrative being structured in the sense that why they needed to really practice this song and perfect it. Because the instrumental breakdowns leave a little to be desired, I guess, but the fact that it's four real people jamming this song rather than just hearing a again a perfect studio version is 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 far more worthwhile and interesting and attention grabbing for me again really really good take and of course McCartney's vocal is as strong as ever pressing on to Digger Pony take 14 now and again this is not a version that has seen an official release 
This is another one of those slightly slower takes that you may have heard in the bootlegs that they were playing with earlier on. But the key difference is, is that only McCartney does the all I want is little intro to the song that would eventually be cut. Preceding any of that, though, there's also a little bit of studio chatter whereby John Lennon refers to Glyn Johns as Glynis, which is just peak Lennon humour. Additionally, just like the version of I've Got a Feeling from before, it has this beautifully discordant, unfinishedly guitar sound that I just find to be so enjoyable. Oh, and before I forget, Lennon ends the track with a line about how all he wants is to get back, which leads us nicely into our next track, which is Get Back, Take 19. Now, whilst this version did incorporate elements of what would become the Glyn John's Get Back reprise here in one unbroken take, which is admittedly pretty darn interesting, but the fact of the matter, at least as far as I'm concerned, is that this version is just too close to the original to really be worth including, especially compared to other tracks on this disc. I mean, we're already on take 19 by this point, and Get Back ain't the most complicated song the Beatles ever wrote, so how different from the final version could it have been if this was their 19th attempt? Then again, the solo from John in this one is a testament to, again, why they needed to practice as much as they did, because it's not that polished. Um, but I don't think that's worthy of inclusion like yeah it's nice that we get the reprise in one unbroken take a bit like dig it on the glenn johns disc but again i really would have preferred the fast version of get back the no pakistanis one or Raus. though to add some positivity to this review something i always like about alternate takes to get back are the additional little squeaks and squeals that mccartney does they're almost different every time as well as the fact that Billy Preston's piano is brought a little further forward in the mix. After a thankful respite from Pointless Whiffle, we come to another bit of studio conversation in the form of a track titled Like Making an Album. In this 40-odd second dialogue, the band discuss whether to focus on making an album or the upcoming live concert, which dovetails into the pros and cons of whether it would be better for them to learn more songs for the rooftop gig or whether they should focus on the ones that they've more or less perfected already. Now, whilst you don't hear them specifically say the rooftop, the fact that they refer to it as happening on Thursday, which the rooftop gig did happen on a Thursday, you know that that's what they're talking about. Next up, we have One After 909 Take 3. And I'm not going to lie, whilst I do prefer the Glyn Johns mix of One After 909 when compared to either the original or the 2021 one, this is the true top dog at the end of the day. I never thought this song could have any more energy and wild abandon, but it does. And the extra noodling from Billy Preston on guitar is just so goddamn tasty. Yeah, um, not really too much to explain with this one. It, it, it's just the best version of the one after 909. It's got more guts, more grit and more oomph to it. What more do you want? Then we come on to Don't Let Me Down, the first rooftop performance. And yeah, this is the only bit of the rooftop gig we really get on this album, bar the stuff that ended up on the final album. And yeah, thank God we did get something, because this is probably the best song they did on the rooftop. It's still as spellbinding and as magical as ever. I mentioned this in a new segment previously on the show, but this is the one performance that I really was going to hope was going to make it onto this vinyl more than any other purely because 
well, back in the day of music sharing platforms like LimeWire, my dad downloaded this song thinking it was the single version. So for many years, whilst listening to my dad's old brick iPod, I thought that this was the definitive version of Don't Let Me Down. And for me, in many ways, it still is. Most because of the bit when John flubs his line, and rather than singing the verse, he just goes, Blue blue de blue de blue, like she does. And he, and he just goes back back into it. It's so candid and real, like, ah, (laughs) the fact that John just keeps rolling with it as well is just so artistic, you know, the show must go on, I really love it. Next up, we have an alternate take that I think we all knew was going to be on this set, which is The Long and Winding Road, take 19 to be precise. As far as my ear could tell, this is basically just the version we already got on Let It Be Naked, and whilst I do prefer this despectorized version of the song as well as the absolutely spectacular Billy Preston organ solo towards the end I can't listen to this song and not totally empathize with what Phil Spector thought about it and the reasons why he added all of his orchestrations like yeah it does kind of sound a little hollow and a little bare bones and yeah that is part of the let it be get back experience, but I can't totally decry him for it, like I say earlier. Um, I do get it, and this song totally highlights why he did what he did. And closing out disc one, we have Wake Up Little Susie, I Me Mine, take 11. For anyone not in the know, Wake Up Little Susie was a track by the Everly Brothers, who, as you should know, were one of John and Paul's greatest inspirations. And... They start off this track by just jamming this tune. You know, this could have been the alternate Save the Last Dance for Me on the Glyn Johns album, for example. It's just them playing more goldies and oldies, which I always love. And after the closing moments of that song, we cut straight into what seems to be an instrumental version of I Mean Mine. It's a very early version of the song, meaning that not only is it the short like minute and a half version, but... The middle eighth hasn't even been worked out by this point. However, as someone who is currently learning this song on guitar as we speak, this take is all about appreciating the genius behind its chord structure and its instrumentation. The cutest thing about this track, though, is that whilst it is meant to be a kind of instrumental backing track, you can just about hear George's vocal being picked up on one of the other incidental mics. We also get some great George humour in this one, as we get his semi-classic self-deprecating comments at the end about how he's carrying on the good work of Dave D, Dozy, Beaky, Mick and Titch. Okay, after all that, we are only one disc down, so on to disc two, which is Get Back, Rehearsals and Apple Jams. And to kick this off, we have another bit of studio chatter that goes into a proper song. Only this time, it's a track that we don't even hear on the final album, or any Beatles album for that matter. This is On The Day Shift Now, Speech, and the rehearsal of All Things Must Pass. This is a moment that is so fucking revealing of the dynamic of the band at this point. I mean, not only does it show how brave George was to debut a song like this to the other lads, but it also shows their immediate enthusiasm to play along with him and try it out, even if it doesn't end up on the final album. Not only that, but it also highlights just how quickly the Fab Four can pick up a song once they know the chords, which again displays how proficient they are as musicians. 
Of course, All Things Must Pass is one of my favourite George Harrison songs of all time, so to hear it in its most basic early form like this is a joy. Like the opening of disc one, the studio chatter here is more just a connective tissue to kind of get us into the first track and really isn't anything uh, worth talking about. Although you do hear George say Harry Krishna, which is pretty cool. Next up, we have the only conversational piece on this disc titled Concentrate on the Sound. This chit chat centres on the group discussing the logistics of performing their concert here slash there at Abbey Road Studios. Paul and George are the main parties here, and there is much debate over whether the acoustics of the space are sufficient and whether the ceiling is too high. The highlight comes at the end when John chimes in with his thoughts that the band should be, as per the title, concentrating on the sound, all whilst playing his guitar and turning it into a kind of quasi-musical spoken word poetry piece. Again, it's fun for what it is, but I, I just want to hear something else. I, you know, I suspect that this track and its length was done to fill up time, like they had a spare 40 seconds. And I just don't believe that they couldn't have found a dozen other things under a minute to have put on instead. Like, do you remember that disc that came out with Let It Be Naked, where there was just like an extra disc of studio chitter-chatter? And yeah, I know it was kind of supplementary in the best and worst possible ways, but it wasn't included on there in the you know in lieu of other material and this is and it just still feels egregious in third place we have another track that would one day end up on a solo beetle composition which of course is john's own give me some truth which would end up on imagine as to be expected this is very conceptual a very early draft version of the song that whilst far from the finished product still includes the catchy hook and convincingly conveys the idea that this really could have been a Beatle track in some alternate universe. I mean, so many hypothetical 1971 or Green Beatles albums include this track in their listings, and this rudimentary rehearsal shows exactly why that might have been the case. It's a shame, really, that John never recorded some harmonies for this track when he did the solo version, because it really adds this inclusive atmosphere that it's more about the people wanting the truth as opposed to just the singular John Lennon. Moving on, and we have another version of Army Mine, this time just a rehearsal again, and this is another very early stage version of the song, but at least this time we get to hear George's angelic falsetto vocal on the top. It really is touching and, like... Ugh, it can almost make you cry. Like, it's just so touching. And, you know, <laughs> it makes you wonder how the Beatles don't immediately veto this song because of, you know, it's so clearly about the sessions going on right now. Like, they immediately poo-pooed Sour Milk Sea because that was a bit too revealing. And yet, with this song, they still give it another another good old hurrah. I know it was probably included just to go along with the footage of John and Yoko dancing, but it seems like a lot of effort just for that. Musically, though, whilst this track isn't as perfect as, say, George's solo electric guitar version of something that can be found on the Abbey Road box set, just hearing him play as well is an absolute marvel. It sounds... the tones and oh, just the way he plays, it's so sonorous, it's so peaceful, and yet it's this really tense, agitated song. There's, there's such a brilliant contrast to it. 
Now we move on to the Abbey Road section of this album, as the sessions almost had the entirety of Abbey Road mapped out at one stage or another. The first of these is She Came In Through the Bathroom Window rehearsal, and wowee, is this thing another revealing window into the Beatles' creative process? Um, it almost reminds me of that Maxwell Silver Hammer track from the Abbey Road box set, where Paul stops the rehearsals just to give comments on how it should be played and ideas he has, and you get a lot of that in this. There's many sections where Paul going to stop and goes, we need something here, or we need to change that, and it's just, like, as someone who's never made an album and worked with a band in that kind of context, like, I could imagine that, yeah, that might get annoying if someone stops halfway through and just kind of dictates, but it's also magic just to hear this song being constructed in this way. And, you know, again, it's so unthinkable to think that these songs don't come out fully formed in that kind of early Beatles way. And yet this almost feels even more natural than that. It really is a privilege to be let in, to peek in on this process. And not only that, I think I actually prefer this this rehearsal, this ramshackle, shambolic all over the place stop start version of the song i actually think i like it more than the one that actually ended up on the album i love the guitar tone on this as well with that kind of wow 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 going on it's just so much fun pressing forth and we have the rehearsal take of polythene pam a track that like the one after 909 is low-key my favorite song of the album even though i know it's no one else's favorite this is another song where i can really just enjoy how rough and unfinished it is as you could probably tell, I love arbitrary differences in lyrics, and there's quite a few in here, so it, it automatically floats my boat. Then we finally come to the only real Ringo content on this album, bar his little hello in the opening dialogue. And of course, it's the rehearsal take for Octopus's Garden. And this isn't even an Abbey Road proper take either, and it isn't the footage seen in the original movie. And so therefore, it's pure and simply a pleasure to experience. I mean, the fact that they call it the octopus one is worth the price of admission alone. But what I love even more is Ringo testing out earlier lyrics, talking through how he's struggling with the chord progression, and the way George immediately and enthusiastically and in true brotherhood picks up a guitar and begins to work through the song with him. It's all so touching, and it takes some of the sting out of the fact that Ringo didn't even have a full song on this album at all. Moving forward, and we come to yet another Abbey Road tune, but this time it's listed as a jam and not a rehearsal. This is the Oh Darling Jam. Out of all of the tracks that are repeats of Anthology 3, I'd say that this is the most forgivable. I mean, yeah, if you want the best alternate take of this track, then head over to the Abbey Road box set where they do take four, I believe. But what actually makes this track stand out is nothing to do with the music. Now, the Anthology 3 version cuts off at around 4 minutes and 8 seconds, whereas here, the audio continues to show some of the most candid and revealing behind-the-scenes content I've ever heard in Beetledom. Basically, around two-thirds of the way through, when they get through the first run-through of the track, Lennon joyfully declares that he's just received the news that Yoko has been granted the divorce from her first husband, and he sings I'm Free, and then this goes into an impromptu version of Oh Darling, where John's kind of taking the lead here, rather fascinatingly, and he incorporates the 
the Yoko love and freedom feeling into the lyrics of Oh Darling. It's so cool to see it just be done live and the way that they're able just to morph the song into that. It's so fucking cool. Next up we have Get Back, Take Eight. And annoyingly, the majority of this one is pointlessly similar to the versions we already know. And the only reason that I would have thought it was included is that there's a rather humorous outro coda to close it out. Like Paul goes, it's five o'clock, your mother's got your tea on, take your cap off, sit down, we're not coming here again. And yeah, you know, it, it's pretty darn funny for what it is, and it furthers the whole these sessions weren't all doom and gloom narrative. But aside from that, it really does seem like a wasted alternative get back slot, especially since we had one earlier that was already pretty similar to the original. God, give me one of the alternative controversial versions, please. Following on, and we have another track that I'd never heard till this set came out, titled The Walk, which is a jam. The long and short of this piece is that it feels akin to what Paul's version of something like Dig It would have sounded like, in the sense that it's a jam that he leads, and it actually sounds pretty darn good for what it is, and it also could have acted as a link track for the final album. It's only less than a minute long, and for what it's worth, it's a cute little oddity that really was worth including far more than many of these other alternative takes. Of course, having a bonus track with Ringo on a lead vocal was a truly wonderful moment earlier on this disc, but with our next track titled Without a Song Jam, we have a lead vocal from resident piano player and all-around cool cat Billy Preston. Now, if Ringo wasn't getting a song, then certainly this guy wasn't going to get one, but it's cool to know that they didn't have Billy sat silent during these sessions, which is somewhat ironic considering the title of the track itself. Now, I don't need to tell any of you out there how delectable Billy's voice is. You probably all should know, considering your age demographics. But it does raise an interesting what-if question as to what the Beatles may have sounded like if they had become, like John said, a more amorphous, multi-membered group had they not broken up. I mean, so much of their sound early on was built on and inspired by black artists, and one can only imagine how interesting their sound could have been if Billy had gotten a future vocal, or even a B-side during this era. Next up, we have even more George Harrison content, and again, we get to highlight just how many A-songs George could have put on this album if they were finished and polished enough to impress the likes of John and Paul, and of course, I am talking about Abbey Road's Something, and wow, this one is just a delight, pure and simple. I mean, as per before, I'm a sucker for any new George content in this collection, and getting to hear them play even the most rudimentary, basic version of this song was a treat. However, the real value of this rehearsal is the conversational stuff, and it's George bemoaning the fact that he has been labouring over the lyrics for six months, and John, the Beatles, who supposedly didn't care about George's music, offers him some genuinely useful advice, in that he tells him to sing anything that fits the syllables until he figures it out later. You know, something in the way she moves attracts me like a cauliflower, is his example. Yeah, it's great. Especially when George responds with, attracts me like a pomegranate. It really highlights the collaborative nature of the Beatles, even at this supposedly fractured point, you know, whilst each person might be leading each song in a solo manner, each of them is still going to bring something to the plate and change it ever so slightly and make it 
Beatles music. And finally, folks, after all of that, we come to the closing number of this double disc collection, which is rather fittingly, Let It Be, Take 20. Now, of course, they chose this song to end this collection. Duh. But what was even more obvious, even before you listen to this track, was that it was always going to be another despectorization. Yes, the solo is slightly different, and there are certain Billy Preston parts that aren't quite the same, but yeah, this track is the final nail in the coffin for the Let It Be Naked set. I think this might even be the same track as the one from that set. But yeah, there really isn't anything you can get on that album that you now cannot just get on this one in better quality and as part of a better set. So yeah, that was the entire two-disc collection of bonus material titled Apple Rehearsals, Apple Sessions, Rehearsals and Apple Jams. And whilst I may have come across as a little bit more negative at the start, I think even as we were going through right then, I was warming to a lot of them, uh, especially by the time you get to the end of it and you get all the extra stuff that's not just repeats of other songs. Like That stuff really is worth listening to it's very revealing it really completes and gives you a more well-rounded perception of the sessions not a complete one of course as we mentioned earlier but yeah I actually now that I'm sat here talking about it I actually like it a lot more as a whole than I don't the first disc is a little more ancillary it's mostly just different takes of songs we've already heard before some of them pointlessly not very different at all but you know there are quite a few takes that are remarkably different and all the like the Abbey Road stuff you get, the the jams that weren't included on the original album, they're all excellent and definitely worthy inclusions in this box set. Okay, let's move on to the last bits of plastic that spin around, this time at 45 RPM rather than 33 and a third, as we now discuss the Let It Be bonus EP disc. Now, when I heard that there was going to be a bonus EP with this set, I was kind of hoping for a miniature 7-inch EP, but no, we got a 12-inch, what the old folks might call a maxi-single. This was probably done in equal part for audio quality reasons and to make all the discs the same size in the set. You know, Slash claimed that there's five discs worth of content in this advertisement. Of course, when compared to the other discs, they're really isn't that much content in terms of length to write home about, with side A clocking in at around 5 minutes 16, and side B being bang on 8 minutes. But I went in with an open mind, and I was totally ready to chew on this bone that Apple threw our way. Now, right off the bat, I do like the idea behind this EP, in the sense that this disc mostly exists because the tracks that are on it really wouldn't fit onto any of the other discs, and I'm glad they were able to include this content in some way especially the Glyn John stuff on side A, which didn't even have existed up until this point. However, do you know what would have been better? If they just went ahead and did a third disc of the bonus material at 33 and a third RPM and just included these tracks with some other content, aka the very long list of songs I talked about earlier. But what are you going to do? Also, the lack of any inclusion of You Know My Name, Look Up The Number was also slightly disappointing in spite of the fact that, you know, the, the dates don't line up with these sessions. But come on, it was the B-side to let it be. Come on. Okay, as you can probably guess, I wasn't all too excited about this part of the box set when I first saw the trailer and in magazine pages. But I would be lying if I said that I don't admire it now. 
Regardless of what it could have been, I have to say that I've come to admire this little EP. Whilst the box set does feel incomplete, this EP does bring a certain charmingly kitsch sense of completion and closure in how it closes up certain gaps in these sessions that would have been unforgivable if they had left open. With side A, the aforementioned Glyn John stuff, I was delighted to find that Glyn even did versions of both Across the Universe and I'm E Mine, and I was even happier to find out that they didn't stick them on the Glyn John's disc and mess with history. Then with side B, as someone who enjoys minor variations in songs, especially single versions of said songs, I gotta admit, a very specific itch had been scratched in very satisfying fashion. Let's talk about the songs themselves. Starting off this cute little bonus EP, we have the unreleased 1970 Glyn Johns mix of Across the Universe, and oh my god, this thing is immediately fascinating. Not only for the fact that it merely exists, but in the sense that there is so much going on that is different from the final version. At the start, Glynis adds a bit of his signature studio chatter, followed by this little drum line which counts the song in, which I certainly enjoyed. Then we get some backing vocals behind John, which sound either like the original World Wildlife Fund vocals mixed in, or Paul and George doing a very good impression of it. Either way, it's lower than in the original WWF mix, and it's far more effective because of it, like their actual backing vocals rather than these overpowering... Though, the standout element is this very beatly sitar drone that we hear in the background. I never even knew that this instrument was even a part of these sessions, and to hear it, even in its very minor role here, gave me literal goosebumps. In the end, this one is difficult because I immensely enjoy the 2021 mix of this song, and I really don't want to choose between that and this one, but what I can certainly say is I enjoy them both more than the original, and if... Glyn John's Get Back had been released and this was included, then Lennon certainly would have adored it far more than the original. Next up, the other song on side A is the Glyn John's unreleased 1970 mix of I Me Mine. So this was one of the tracks that was previewed to us a couple of months ago leading up to the release date and in my own ignorant forgetfulness I forgot how significant that that was because obviously there was no official Glyn John's version of Get Back that featured I Me Mine. Again, as with Across the Universe, I didn't even know that Glyn had worked on this song. Uh, you know, again, as I mentioned earlier, I think I was under the impression that this was introduced so late into the production that he wouldn't have even got a chance to work on it. But how wrong I was. In typical Get Back style, it begins with some studio chatter, with George asking if Ringo's ready, and they count in the performance. Overall, this is the definitive best version of the shorter, non-doubled-up version of I Me Mine, and you can definitely picture it being squeezed onto the Get Back album if they had shortened Dig It a little bit. On to side two, we come to a song whose inclusion was very much needed at this point, as it was a non-album A-side at this point, which was Don't Let Me Down. Now, of course, this is the Giles Martin 2021 mix of this song, so I was quite perplexed and delighted when I heard some studio banter starting this track off. Paul asks what other songs they have to play, and when Don't Let Me Down is mentioned, Paul very kindly expresses that, that's a bloody good one, that. Then John, in his typical way, can't take the compliment, and instead does a bunch of jokes and riffs on the title with Paul for a few seconds. Then, after George says, come on boys, they launch into it. 
the best way that I can describe this is that it's the original Don't Let Me Down done to the incredibly high standard as the rest of the 2021 remix of the album. Though I can't really pick up on many significant differences once the song begins outside of how clean it sounds. I really did enjoy this mix though. And yeah, this might be down to the fact that I'd heard a couple of far rougher mixes of this song before I got to this, but it just sounded so wholesome and pure that I completely fell for it. Okay, folks, now we're on to the final piece of music that we're going to be discussing here today. Here today. And it is the 2021 mix of the single version of Let It Be. What really surprised me with this one here is how much they cranked up those Long and Winding Road-esque choral backing vocals. Um, they really are quite prominent in this mix, and I really enjoy the way that they complement Paul's vocal and give us something completely different for the single. It's weird, though, because... Whilst they only appear on the George Martin-produced single with the inferior George Martin-approved solo, it really does give that classic gooey, warm, fuzzy Phil Spector feel, which makes me wonder whether a George Martin-produced Let It Be would have been more familiar to us than different. Games to think about, which I really appreciated. But yeah, a very good mix of the song, though... It, uh, I don't know... I, I think the other version might be too clean. So yeah, I'd probably say that this is my favourite mix of Let It Be from this collection. And I kind of wish this one may have gone on the actual album in the end. But you can't mess with history, can you folks? And that is the end of my review of the EP. I kind of gave my general thoughts in the intro. So I'll just conclude by saying, yeah, I really enjoy it. It's got some lovely, quirky little pieces of music on it. And its inclusion whilst not fully utilising the disc space, is a nice little inclusion. It's cool to have an EP on it as well, to have some different uh, items played at different speeds. And I'm glad that they left no stone unturned in terms of the official content from the album. And finally, everyone, we come to the day's Beatle book. Apology to Joe Wisby if I said the words Beatle and book too closely together. I don't want to infringe on any copyright. But yeah, let's talk about the text that came with the Beatles 50th anniversary set. I mean, I, I'm kind of at a loss to call it anything other than the Let It Be 50th anniversary book, because on the cover there is literally no title, and when you open to the first page, you see a title of Get Back that has the title of Let It Be taped over the top of it. It's a cute little visual metaphor, but it doesn't help me get to the bottom of what this book is actually called officially. Yeah, um, I'm not really much of a book reviewer, as many of you know. With my interviews with Joe Wisby, I'm not much of a reader either. I, I tend to get most of my Beatle information uh, secondhand online, that kind of thing, or on podcasts. Um, I do struggle to sit through a book, but I did find this book to be a lovely little companion piece in the way that I'm going to be discussing with the Get Back book as well, in the way that that's going to be a wonderful companion to the film. This is a must-read when you are listening to the whole album from start to finish. It has so much information, most of which, you know, you have heard before, but it contains a lot, and I mean a lot of little nuances and details that I, as someone who would like to think he knows a lot about the Let It Be sessions, was completely unaware of. There are loads of fantastic photos in the book, as to be expected by this point. You know, you got Linda and Ethan Russell taking care of that in spectacular form, but it's just presented beautifully. There's so many wonderful large page spreads that 
really capture the grandeur and the majesty of the sessions. It's also got a real collaborative feel to the book. It's not just one man's vision, rather like the Beatles themselves. It is cobbled together from many different influences. And let's just go through them right now. You've got The Forward by Paul McCartney, written by the Big Mac himself. And of course, it was very heartwarming to hear Paul's thoughts on these sessions. But there was a sense that this was very much Paul looking through rose-tinted glasses at these sessions. He describes the camera crews and, you know, just as a bit intimidating or a mild annoyance. And in the end, he talks about how Jackson's new edit of the footage is how he wants to remember the Beatles, not necessarily how it was. I also thought it was quite telling that he starts off with a recollection of the other Beatles mocking him for wanting a job, i.e. to constantly get back in the studio, as if he's still feeling anxiety over these comments all those years later, and then he moves on to talk about how he feels vindicated that the album really was good and the right decision in the end. Still, though, you know, it's it's writings from Paul. Um, it's always going to be more interesting to break down what he really means and what all the nuances and uh, obfuscations are rather than just talking about what he actually says. Also, it's clear that this book, as well as the Get Back book, was printed before the Beatles' Get Back was turned from a film into a miniseries, as Paul here refers to it as a singular film. Also, on a little side note, couldn't we have had a little forward from Ringo as well? I'm sure he'd like to add some generic platitudes disguised as insights also. Up next, we've got the short introduction from Giles Martin, son of George Martin, and boy oh boy does like to point that out several times in this short piece. Basically, Giles gives us the bare bones as to what these sessions were, were about, and its place within Beatles canon. What was interesting, though, was how he gave a huge shout-out to the once sidelined Glyn Johns, as to being a fundamental force behind this album, whilst only mentioning Phil Spector in a quote from his father as to how overproduced the album was. Additionally, I do find it quite ironic as to how much emphasis he puts on Let It Be being without any studio manipulation and how it was meant to be getting back to basics, and yet his entire job on this project was to undercut that ethos and add modern wizardry to the production. Though, I did like his analogy that rather than being a breakup album, that these sessions were more like a, a married couple who might be a bit on the ropes trying to go out on dates again. I think it really does capture the will-they-won't-they air to the proceedings, and that it truly could have gone either way. In the end, though, the most poignant thing he says is at the end, when he highlights how the music itself will far outlast any of the speculations and conversations around its creation and production. And you'll outlast podcasts talking about it as well, for that matter. Then we have Glyn John's recollection of the events that transpired, simply titled Glyn John Remembers. And this was the one I was most interested in, really, for its length anyway, as his is one of the voices behind this album that is rarely ever heard in detail. Seemingly, though, from his perspective, until the Beatles rejected his concept album, something he clearly understood the reason behind, by the way, which I thought was quite interesting was an entirely positive one. To him, the Beatles were all welcoming and charming and offered him more than he ever could have hoped for in terms of both his role and experience. He also recalls that it was basically his idea to do it on the roof as well, which I'd never heard before. Following on from that is a section by John Harris titled Everybody Had a Hard Year, Everybody Had a Good Time, The Myth and Reality of the Letter B Sessions. 
This part of the book is pretty self-explanatory and mostly details many elements that I'm sure are going to be explored in greater detail in Jackson's upcoming film series, as well as expanding a bit more on the backstory. Thankfully, whilst he does go into the general spiel of how it was a lot more positive than the stories made out, which in all likelihood it was, he was still a lot more honest about the negative tensions between the band, how they were separating his people, etc, etc, during these sessions. But again, he does highlight how this was mostly a Twickenham thing and how everything got more positive at Apple and once Billy joined. There's also a lot of interesting content about the rooftop concert, as well as a, a section where he goes through the reviews for the album. Though I did think it was funny as to how the negative reviews he selected were the ones that emphasised how strong the Beatles' songwriting was and how poor Phil Spector's production was. Very funny indeed. Then we come on to another little history piece called What Do You Want To Do Now? by Kevin Howlett. Now this is more about the intentions of the sessions and the concept behind it rather than what objectively went down and whilst not as in-depth as the previous two, it still reinforces how positive and enthused the Beatles were about this whole project and how it naturally went from being the fly on the wall thing to being the let it be we know today. Then Howlett basically does all of the track by track stuff. He does what well, a section literally called track by track, where he goes through the album and all of the stories behind them. Of course, a lot of this you'll already know if you've been on websites like Beatle Books or the Beatles Bible, but it's still presented in a very easy to read fashion and still full of interesting trivia. Then he goes on to rehearsals and Apple Jams, which whilst not in like a track by track order ordered fashion, it gives you all the info on all the songs included on those two bonus discs. Then we have a little section that I wish was longer called Get Back to Let It Be, again by Kevin Howlett. And this is a section where basically he just talks about how it was originally the Get Back project and then how it became Let It Be. Uh, again, I wish it was a bit more in-depth, but I still appreciate that Glyn Johns has his own section in this book and Phil Spector does not. As short as it was, it was a nice redressing of the balance between the two main producers on this album, and it really does highlight how a lot of what we like about this album was down to Glyn John's work, and how Spectre basically came in and finished it off in his own way. And yeah, that's my little brief description of what goes on in that book. Again, I'm not much of a literary critic, and well, it's not even a literary piece, this is all factual, um, the whole book is, again, presented very well. It's very easy to read and it's very easy to find the information you need if you want to read along to the music, a bit like story time. Though I can't imagine, as with like many Beatle documentaries, how much new information is in here. But if you want a lovely little coffee table book about Let It Be, in addition to the other coffee table book about these sessions that we'll be getting onto on another episode then yeah, I really can't fault it. It's very well done. All of the writers inside clearly have a lot of passion and knowledge about these sessions. And it really does condense into one, not little, into one large book, everything you would ever want to know about Let It Be and Get Back in terms of the facts, as well as the emotional intent, actually. Uh, it's actually quite nuanced in a lot of its essays. And I'm quite glad that it wasn't just a big book of encyclopedic facts. You know, there is an awful lot of well-thought-out meditations on this 
all too interesting period of the Beatles backstory. And there we are, folks. That is the end of my review of the Let It Be 50th Anniversary box set. Is it perfect? No. Did I expect it to be? Not really, because there's just too much Let It Be to go around. There's never going to be a definitive box set outside of releasing the entire 56 hours of Nagra Reel footage and, you know, releasing every single song that was ever released, which is just too impractical and is never going to be done, at least officially. But sat here at the end of it after going through my wonderful box set, I can only be satisfied. I really do think that that it is up to the same standard as all the previous Beatle box sets. I know I don't own them, but I've certainly listened to them and read about them enough. And yeah, this is certainly on par with them. Maybe the disc of bonus materials could have been a little more thorough. Well, it should have been a lot more thorough. But everything else you got in it was so masterfully crafted. There was a lot of love and care and affection that went into this box set. And it shows. Yes, I know it's the first one that I got. So I'm probably going to be a little bit biased here. I get that. But I'm not going to sit here and say... It's not worth getting. I really hope you all went out and bought it. I hope, if not, that you're able to listen to it on your streaming service of choice. Because at, at, at the end of this time, I feel like I know so much more about this particular period of the Beatles than I ever did prior to buying it. And that alone is worth the pounds I spent on it. Or should I say you guys spent on it thank you to my wonderful patreon family out there look i'm not gonna ramble it's really good i really enjoy owning it i'm glad i have it i wish i'd bought all the other box sets even more now that i've purchased this one and the hunt begins folks because i know that there was a couple at my local hmv the last time i went there i might have to swing on by but yeah folks i'm sure denny lane is already playing us out please folks if you enjoyed this episode, write in to paulmccartneypod at gmail.com or hit me up on, on Twitter, which is at McCartneypod. Let me know what you thought. Let me know what you thought about the episode and what you thought about the box set in general. Did you get it? If not, why so? If you did, tell me what you thought about it. I really want to get a dialogue going about this album. What songs do you wish were included on the bonus materials? What tracks do you think that they should have been left off? Are you happy with the Glyn Johns album? Did, have you bought the Japanese version? I'd love to hear that. Oh my God, that'd be really interesting indeed. Thankfully, someone in the Beatle podcasting community had already sent me all of the Japanese files. Not that I'll be playing them on here. Don't want to get sued, do I? But yeah, folks, keep listening to Paul. Keep listening to the Beatles. Keep listening to Paul or Nothing. Thank you very much. Peace and love, peace and love. No more autographs.
Oh, I thought it was last mile to get me a set of that. Let's go up here. <laughs> Oh, 